Welcome to our show where you're going to hear a couple of young Americans sit and talk about David Bell. I'm Charlie. And I'm Corey. And this week we are talking about the one and only David Bowie and his 1975 album, Young Americans. Thank you for joining us. We were off last week because a lot was going on. Sometimes that happens and you gotta take a brief break, but we put out a rerun. Hope you enjoyed that of our first ever uh, podcast together back in 2020. Yeah, man. That was back on uh, Turn Back Time. That yes, was stars, was. Right? Oh, man. Wow. Yeah, that was a good time. And we're talking about another album from the same year. So it's all nicely connected here, but this is... um. Well, this is kind of two things. We're wrapping up our previous first ever concept month of Harry's House. And we're kicking off a new month, which I'll reveal what that is at the end, because you'll see how it all ties together then. And I like to have some suspense. So, (laughs) but anyway, basically, this was the listener's decision to do David Bowie and Young Americans. So I'm guessing most of you know who David Bowie is if you click to stream on this podcast he's a titan of popular music so um big shoes to cover this guy definitely a big artist and our listeners pick this one and i'm gonna say it a million times throughout the night it couldn't have fit better inside of this month like this choice oh my gosh so many cool connections so great job guys Yes, quite a few. I did know quite a few myself. So the most interesting being that they were at um, both Bowie and Harry Styles were the exact same age when they released these albums because Harry Styles is 29, released Harry's House almost a year ago. And David Bowie was 28 when he released this album. And they both found them exploring into a bit of the R&B soul sounds more than they had before. Of course, Bowie had a different approach of doing it a bit, let's just say, and maybe a bit more of a drastic change. Super drastic, and even just the musicians he was playing with or found, the universe dropped them all together. Such a drastic change for for a Bowie coming off, or, or getting ready, actually, when he started to meet these guys, the, uh, the, the Diamond Dogs tour one. Yes, so for some background, 1974, David Bowie was on tour for his album release that Your Diamond Dogs, which was another glam rock album of his. It has the classic Rebel Rebel. So he's doing quite well. And this was a big production tour, unlike anything that had been done before in terms of theatrics and a concert. Really big deal. And he's in America for this tour and rehearsing it and that's not home for him because he's British in case you didn't know and the genesis for his next era comes from around the spring of 74 he ended up going to Harlem in New York and he saw shows at the Apollo Theater there which is a very famous venue and saw shows from artists like Marvin Gaye and The Temptations And he said that he liked the anonymity that these shows afforded him because the audiences just weren't really familiar with him. They didn't pick out that he was David Bell. So he liked doing that. And he was just listening to a lot of the R&B music being produced at the time. And this was a golden age of R&B music. 70s soul is rightfully considered a golden age of R&B music. 
Americana and, music, period, you know? Most yes. definitely. Yes. And uh, he was just ready to do something new with his sound, not what he'd been doing. He was ready to move on. And he'd shown himself to be somebody who switched personas and ideas pretty quickly. He'd already proven that by this point. After all, he stopped performing as Ziggy Stardust after only one year, despite the success of that persona and out. So it was just kind of where he was. And in July of 74, the first part of the tour was over, the first leg, and he went to Philadelphia to start recording a new album at the Sigma Sound Studios. And that was where Gamble and Huff worked. And they were the top producers of Philly Soul. They produced classic hits for groups like the OJs and Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. And Bowie wanted to record with the group MFSB. Uh, He was only able to get their conga player, Larry Washington. But he was able to get quite a few established Philly soul players at the time for use on this new record, and some of them brought their friends along, which gave the album some authenticity, I would say. Super authenticity. I mean, to think that he wanted mother, father, sister, brother, which is he got the Congo player. That's 30 awesome musicians doing their thing. And so that's where his mentality was going forward into this because he had already met carlos alomar um who had played you know speaking of played at the apollo with people all types of crazy funk uh throughout and now they find and make this friendship and and move on to start doing this album with some serious players it's great Uh, it's a wild look into his mindset here yeah it really is and he was so in deep on this that in september of 74 he goes back on tour and he just does away with the tour he'd done and made it a soul show they call it the philly dogs tour or the soul tour at this point and he performed some of these new as yet unreleased songs on this tour because he felt so inspired by this new direction that he was going in. And they were mostly done, but in January of 1975, we'll talk a bit more about this as it goes on when those songs come up, but Bowie met a very famous musician and they collaborated briefly and put together the last piece of the album somehow. And they were ready to go. Um, fun story. David Bowie actually went Norman Rockwell to paint the cover of this album. Yeah. But he was told it would take six months to complete. So that was not okay. So that didn't happen. But we still got a nice picture of Mr. Bowie. And album was released in March of 1975. And in his home country of the UK, made it up to number two which was expected at that point of Bowie. He was much bigger in his home country than he was anywhere else. But what was really significant was this album's success in the U.S. So it made it up to number nine on the U.S. album charts and was number 20 for the whole year. He was known enough in the U.S. that he sold a good amount of albums. He could sell concert tickets, but he wasn't a major pop radio artist his only real big 
pop hit by this but was actually space oddity it's the enigma of this album too this young americans album that he's not really known inside of this young americans mentality but he switches it and records in two of the most powerful places in america uh music wise going on right now he's you know, he does half the album almost or a little bit more. He does part of the album in, in uh, Philly and then he ends up doing the rest of the album in New York. So much energy and so much sound going into this. I can only imagine. But, uh, you know, you can see how the American, I'll even say the American subconscious listener automatically went towards these sounds, regardless of if it was Bowie or not. And that's how he he caught fire on this one. Yeah, he wrote the zeitgeist, and well, really, he was ahead of the time in some cases because these sounds would just come to be more dominant throughout the latter half of the 70s, but he just, it was a right place, right time thing for him, and it paid off for him big time, and it's interesting, right after this album was done, once he'd moved on from it, he was saying that, oh, it wasn't that good. He even once said it was some of the phoniest R&B ever recorded. Just the same year this album came out, he was saying that by the end of the year, because he'd already moved on to making the next one. But years on down the road, he said, I shouldn't have been so hard on myself. It was actually pretty good blue-eyed soul. And it must be noted, David Bowie was really heavy into drugs in 1975, and not all of his public statements make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> or his appearances. <laughs> or his appearances, for that matter. Yeah, those are also a bit rough. But just a forewarning, it does explain some of what you're going to hear about in this episode. So, yeah. yeah. Perfectly stated that he's in front of this movement of sound man i i want to just stamp one real quick for everybody put it up with a pin but this is before chic had even fucking hit the scene excuse my language i'm super excited about this because there's yeah. so much of these artists on this album and they are they're ahead so there's some there's some music on this album he was way too hard on himself in my opinion because even the way it was recorded his vocals were recorded in one take live for this album uh and and that's that's huge you know he even went on to say it was the first time he had heard his raw voice on tape in a long time because they were adding uh production after his recording and, and it was a, a blow to him but this was definitely a redefining, I would say, area and era for him at this point. Most definitely it was. And uh, it's not always universally considered one of the best Bowie albums, along with like Ziggy Stardust or Hunky Dory, but it definitely has its fans and its numbers also do speak for itself. And this definitely did play a big part in David Bowie's U.S. fame, pun intended. <laughs> but with that being said i am ready to dive into the eight songs that make up this piece of work called young americans let's get at it all right so the album begins with the title track young americans and bowie at the time described this as a song about a newlywed couple who don't know if they really like each other but it also has quite a bit of social commentary in here. There's references to Watergate and racism, but very upbeat musically. Definitely has that 
Philly soul sound. They even has great call and response vocals, kind of like they were the young Americans. I mean, this is one of those songs I feel like a lot of people might have picked this album just because of the title of the album being Young Americans. They're just thinking of that song, the song immediately. It's a classic. There's not much else to say about it. I mean, I love it. It's funky, it's soulful, and it has that great wit Bowie is known for, and uh, just the great synthesis of him doing soul music. This is what you'd want it to be. Yeah, we talk about the enigma of this album. We talk about the wildness of Bowie and his his genius of narratives. And this one is is right up there for me. You're starting an album called Young Americans with the track Young Americans. And our immediate brain goes to thinking about, as he said, two young Americans, period. You know, it doesn't matter if they're wife and husband for, for my point here, but really... Social commentary is at the highest throughout this song. We're coming right off the cut in this album, and it is hidden behind this beautiful sound, this crazy, iconic, redefining sound for him, coming out of this glam rock into this this socially just charged. I mean, there's a lot of social commentary in here. The Young Americans is actually the vibe of, of America, you know, or from what I take from it. And from here it looks like he's doing this from an english look inside of america which you also don't expect when or i didn't expect listening to the song i've known this song for a long time but the dissect it it takes on and this album it takes on a very new light um so some some wildly powerful commentary hidden behind some insane music all the way through this album but starting off with track one most definitely and Funny thing about this song for me personally, this is, I didn't hear the whole thing at first, but this is actually the first David Bowie song I've ever heard. You've ever heard? When I was a kid, yes. Oh, heard, heard. Um, And the reason why is because we're going to mention her here, the one and only Cher. For those who don't know, he appeared on her show this year in 1975 and did a few songs off of this album and at one point they did a young americans medley bookended by this song and there was a clip of it included in one of her concert dvds for one of the video montages and i was like i like this song they're doing but i had the force ask me like who's that guy with her and i was so oh that's david bowie and because pretty hard not to notice him and it's pretty funny Cher has a carrot top wig to match his hair what share was bookended in there? Do you know offhand? What songs? In the medley? Well, in the medley, it was a lot of like old, really old 60s songs. I don't remember oh, all it. of them off the top of my head. And honestly, musically, this is a mess. It's a mess to watch. Heard. But it's good TV, admittedly, because <laughs> you're seeing two of our most fascinating entertainers of that era and ever period performing together. and. That alone makes it good TV right there. That's what does it. Super awesome. So there is that. But anyway, this was the first single from the album, which made sense. And it made it to the top 20 in the UK. And in the US, it made it up to 28, which might not sound that impressive. 
but numbers really don't tell the whole story. Charts, they never have, and especially in the 70s, quite a few rock artists, the singles charts just do not accurately represent their grasp on American music. Like, you'll see that even with bands like Pink Floyd and Zeppelin, singles charts don't reflect how big they were at all. And same can be said of Bowie to an extent. But at the time, this was his second highest charting single behind only Space Oddity. So this was bigger than he'd gotten before because a lot of his songs hadn't even gotten to the top 40. Second top 40 hit ever for David Bowie. And should it have charted higher? Absolutely. It should have been a number one hit. Let's not kid ourselves. But this is a signature Bowie tune. It's one that people will always associate with him and an early one for people to think of. And that's really its true legacy. And I'm all for it. This is definitely high on my list of favorite Bowie songs, period. That's never been a question for me. And the question is, how do you follow such a song as Young Americans? Well, it's doable. And they do it here with our second track, which is called Win, which Bowie at the time described as a get up off your backside song about people who don't work very hard. So kind of an abstract song lyrically. He explained his concept. And I think that this song, even though it's kind of vague lyrically, I think it's beautifully orchestrated. And I think he sings the song really well. Bowie's not the most technically gifted singer that we've ever covered on this show at all. And many people will note that. But he really has a good role, soulful vocal on this song. And I mean, I think that it lacks the electricity of the previous song and the following one for that matter. But I do think it's a decent ballad moment that's really beautifully done. It is. As a number two, the beauty in it has been said. You said it great. But for a number two, here we go with a whisper in to pull listeners, you know, get them listening hard. Uh, and they get to listen to a beautifully sang piece by Bowie. Uh, just like you said, always not always the best or I'm the most technical singer, but this one is great. And his vocals and the background vocals they float, man, across those saxophones and strings. They just float that whole way. Um, it almost, knowing now that it was penned to be about uh, laziness or people that aren't getting up and, and working uh, very hard, I wonder if that laid backness is a play on that. But the song works regardless, especially as a number two, because it's powerful enough by its ending to lead us out of it or we don't fall off it but i feel like it's just soft enough to bring us in for a hardcore listen i like this one especially at a number two i thought this was a really great spot for this song before we move on from this song i did want to note something author chris o'leary who's writer of one of many books out there about david bowie he stated that this was actually the song that most signified what he did on the next album and it's always interesting to see that bridge come through on these albums. You always see where we were before a bit and where we're going to get from here. And that's always fun to see, I think. I did read that. I did read that. And I can see that. But this one also keeps that saxophone-ness that rings true throughout this album that I don't think we see later on as much or next album as much. 
Um, but yeah, you can definitely see this is thoughts to the future. Yeah, most definitely. But speaking of the future, the next song actually signifies quite a bit of the future for us in the years to come. And that song is Fascination. So we mentioned Carlos Alomar earlier. He was the guitarist for this album. And a key thing that he did was he brought in some people that he'd worked with outside of Bowie to participate on this album. And one of them was a young 20-something named Luther Vandross. Might have heard of him. And he, early in the sessions for the album, he came up with the backing vocals that you hear on the title track because the song was just missing something and he came up with it. And Bowie liked it so much that he put Luther Vandross in charge of all the backing vocal arrangements for the album, which huge breakthrough for a young artist, certainly, because at the time Luther Vandross was 23 when being oh. asked to do this, that's pretty impressive. But not only that, one day, uh, Luther was working on another song of his with his group called Funky Music is a Part of Me, which is in parentheses. And they didn't know this, but Bowie heard them rehearsing the song. And he was just really into it. And he went up to Luther Vandross and asked if he would let him record it. And I love this. Luther Vandross said, quote, what do you mean let you record it? I'm living in the Bronx in a building with an elevator that hardly works, and you're asking me to let you record one of my songs. <laughs> and so, yes, the answer was pretty obvious. Please record one of my songs. You're David Bowie, and this is the biggest thing that's ever happened to me. Yes, record my song for you. And Bowie did take it, and he did rewrite some of the lyrics, but... And uh, therefore, the song became Fascination, and Luther Vandross did get his first ever writing credit on an album. And, uh, I mean, that's pretty significant in and of itself, because Luther Vandross went on to become a defining R&B force over the next 30 years after this. So, that's pretty significant right there. That's how we're signifying the future here. But as for the song itself, it should have been a single, I think. This would have been a huge hit. I mean, this is seriously funky, it is danceable, and it's just, it's not hard to see why Luther Vandross went on to become who he was and have great success after this in all kinds of fields, because, I mean, this is just great Philly soul and really early disco. This is early disco, and Maybe not everybody likes that description, but this is a great example of it. It's not synthetic at all like some later disco was. It's pure strings and horns and all that good stuff. No synths. It just beautifully done. I mean, uh, groovy funk with 17 exclamation points is my first note on this beautiful jam. Uh, it, you talk about ahead of the jam. You talk about if anybody's pissed that you said early disco, they're crazy. This this exudes the nightlife without even talking about it, really. I mean, it's the way that this 
song is composed is so groovy and so ahead of its time. Uh, this is the one that I had to mark the time for everybody earlier in the album, but this is before Chic hit, okay? And this sound was was everywhere, but it was not like to that level yet. So when you listen to this and put where it is, and then on top of that, coming from Luther Vandross, I, I mean, I literally have goosebumps right now thinking about this beautiful composition that found its way onto an album where Bowie's trying or not trying at this point, but Bowie's embracing this new sound so far that he takes a young artist, not only gives him the, the power on the vocal arrangements, but says, let's record one of your songs. And it's like this there. I can't say good things enough about this. I mean, you hear this sound all the way forward through at least the end of the 70s, early 80s from this track right here and from the sound that he was embodying and interpreting at the same time. It was, it's a great track. Yeah, it definitely is. And what's funny enough was throughout this process and Luther Vandross was a part of the tour as well. And Bowie actually said to him, I read a biography of Luther Vandross doing research for it, which was pretty well done, I thought. And wow. he said, I think 1975 will be your year. And Bowie was actually off by a few years. Uh, Vandross didn't break through solo until 1981, actually. But he got a lot more work and royalty checks in the years right after this. So it was a big start, even if it wasn't quite where he would get. So that is quite significant in and of itself and uh, yeah I unfortunately I think after the second single of the album they just moved on to the next album cycle and yeah. Golden Years is a great song too but this was a real missed opportunity did he do this one on Soul Train this song yeah I don't think he did no he did Fame and Golden Years Golden Years heard this Which would have is... been a perfect one for for Soul Train I know right <laughs> I mean, I think I like this better than Golden Years, which is on the next album. If you want to dance, I would take this over Golden Years. They're both funky grooves, but this one is, uh, it cannot Come be on. denied. It cannot be denied. <laughs> no, not at all. So fascination, it is a winner in our books. And with that, we are now going to close the first side of the album with track number four, which is Right. And uh, Bowie said this song was a mantra of sorts. He said it's a putting a positive drone over, and he said it reaches a particular vibration, not necessarily a musical level. This explanation makes no sense, and this is what I mean when I say he was on a lot of drugs and what he was saying doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but anyway, as for the song itself, and um, once again, I think the backing vocals are beautiful. And um, this is just one of those songs where I don't think it's, I wouldn't quite say it's a highlight of the album, but I think everybody's having a good time doing it. And that comes through. And Bowie is doing his best Elvis impression. And that's also a lot of fun to hear because, again, like we said, Bowie was not the most technically gifted singer. And he wasn't the first person you would have thought would have soul in his voice, but to do a good Elvis impression, which is definitely where this is coming from. There's no doubt in my mind that's not nothing, and it does fit the vibe of this album perfectly 
well, I think. And hey, we needed some Elvis by 1975 because real life Elvis wasn't doing so hot by that point, sadly. I There's so much awesomeness in what you just said. Um, I, I'll start with the mantra quote. And the only reason that I think it sticks a little bit more with me is because right for me becomes a jam session and it's a full track on its own. And it's, and it's, it's not like a throwaway track on the album at, at all, but it really does become a jam session. So if you're hitting that same pitch, because we're pretty much in the same key throughout this whole entire song, if you're, you're sitting in that, that groove positivity is in there and I, I can see where it's at but this song plays out to me like a beautiful jam david sanborn is having a field day in the back I, i'll just picture him just playing his sax by himself like just walking back and forth because he is a key player in this song and it's beautiful it rolls at four minutes and 22 seconds and it was full you know and and it didn't seem uh contrived to to be there at the end of the first side i think it's a really great choice for the first side to uh to end because it's one of those ones where you're like oh yeah let's flip this over maybe not on a like high energy run to flip it over but you're like oh man i'm very intrigued and that ended on a soulful note go into your elvis thing he got so much shit in the press or a lot oh he got a lot of people saying that that part was contrived but i disagree um you know maybe it was dropped a quarter key for him maybe he was doing a little bit more rasp but the way he's already did his vocals throughout this album does not lead me to believe that he is doing anything for show or for you know for the album like he's feeling it he is soulful in this and i i really enjoy this track Yes, and interestingly, we talked about ending this side, but it was actually the B-side for the album's second single. Really? Yeah. I, that makes sense. That makes sense. That'd be If I found this on a B-side, I would be happy as hell. Yeah, what a, what a single to get that one, but we're not at that point of the album yet. Um, we will right. get there, though. That's a fun thing to talk about. Don't you worry, but... In the meantime, we're going to flip the album over to our fifth track, which is going to start. And that is Somebody Up There Likes Me. Bowie described this as a watch out, mate, Hitler's on his way back song, which was not a quote that was well received by the public. And he also called it a rock and roll sociological bit. It's really kind of more about the hollowness of a celebrity, and its title is taken from a 1956 movie starring Paul Newman, not a film I've seen. It's about the life of boxer Rocky Graziano, and I think that throughout this album, we really see the unhappiness with fame. It's kind of all over the place here. Like, you hear bits of it, I think, in certainly Right and Win, even, and certainly on album's last track i do think that this disillusionment with fame is a bit i think it's a bit of a repetitive motif on the album and that was something that bowie liked to talk about i think it was something he was really feeling at the time because he wanted to be famous and be a big rock star but he learned that it's just so hollow and unfulfilling and 
that was real of him to do, but I just think that this this idea was done better, particularly later in the album. It was done a lot better than this one, and I also just don't think this song needed to be six and a half minutes long. It just goes on for too long, in my opinion. If it were like two minutes shorter, I might like it a bit more. But this one, it has its cool moments, but it's a bit of a filler for me. Yeah, no, I, I totally am with you as far as it's a little bit long on the ears. Um, it does have its moments. You know, like I said, as a sax man, I get Sanborn again. So it, he goes off and that's a highlight for me. It's a softer, soft-ish opener on the ears for the second side, but it has enough energy to really start the second side off, in my opinion. It's not my favorite one. Uh, and you're right. The, the look into the celebrity life has, it's been all over this. Um, it, in fact, it's another part of this album as an enigma, as this beautiful process and beautiful inside the Bowie writing. Um this one, it, it, all, th that thought of him not being happy, trapped inside this groovy funk and pretty much upbeat album for the most part is so wild because it's hidden back here. Um, and, and you, you know, you, you talked about fame or the last track. We'll talk about that later, but you're right. It, it, it's done. It's done all over this album, and this isn't the best way it's done. I'll tell you what, though, as a connection through, a weird connection through our last month, this could be put up there uh, as far as the feeling of the celebrityness of, like, Island off of Endless Summer, or even Who Do You Think I Was off Trio. Um, so it's wild that we're looking at these artists redefining themselves in all these albums that we've been looking at. And another great reason why kudos to the listeners for picking this one, because it's something that is just so crazy to see, but on their redefining or their reinventing albums, a lot of them have these feelings of, of emptiness inside of the celebrity notion. Just a cool, all part of the, this, the wild universe that we learn about diving into these, you know, whether it be yeah. feelings, whether it be players, whether it be record labels, producers, it's all, a super small world and in, in universe <laughs> but yeah this one's not not my favorite on the album yeah and what's funny about all this is bowie did it before all of these people he did it before right, any truth. of them were even born <laughs> truth truth a lot of these players man you know, go on to these like john trio john mayor trio wouldn't have happened unless the bass player who's on this album would have showed up to a uh, you know a, a charity gig like it's all these crazy pieces anyway that's yeah. that's for an, another day <laughs> but yeah but who knew who knew but who knew speaking of connections we've got the big one we've been dancing around up to this point but it's we we have to do it and uh if you're familiar with bowie you probably already know where we're heading so track six is across the universe this is not a Bowie original. This is a Beatles cover. And uh, you might be thinking, why is Bowie doing a Beatles cover? That just seems kind of out of place. Well, there was a reason for it. So in January of 1975, David Bowie met none other than John Lennon in a New York City nightclub. And they bonded over talking about fame and how disillusioning it was. And 
they both had had their trials and tribulations by 1975. Lenin particularly had had some. We'd seen quite a bit from him. And he, not long after this, went into a five-year hiatus. So they were both coming from a real place of disillusionment, not to use that word over and over again, but really that's the best word to describe it, I think. But after they met, they recorded this cover together of Across the Universe. And this is pretty notable for a Beatles cover in that it has a co-sign from a Beatle because Lennon plays on it. And for those who don't know, the Let It Be album and its production was quite contentious and several members were unhappy with how the album turned out. And Lennon didn't like how Across the Universe turned out. So he was happy to do a different version of it. And Though he didn't like that version either, he said that he wanted to hammer the hell out of the song. So, I think that's cool. <laughs> I'm stroking my beard ready for you on this one. How, how do you feel about this one? I don't think the song needs all of this, and I do think it's out of place on the album. And uh, I know Let It Be, like, it's a controversial subject for a lot of people, a lot of Beatles fans, a lot of people have their feelings on how it should have sounded, whether it be Paul or John or whoever. It actually sounds very good the way it is. That's my hot tea take of this, actually. Let It Be is fantastic. And I know it has its defenders, but even the Phil Spector songs sound really good. So that's my hot tea take on that. And I don't think this song really needed to be redone. It's it just, I don't, and I also think that just Bowie's interpretation of it's overdone. I think he oversings on it. And I think that the song was too new for this kind of reinterpretation at the time. The song was only five years old. It was still pretty fresh in people's head. It, heads. It was on the last release Beatles album. Why did we need to do this now? Like, this is the kind of thing you'd think would make sense on Years down the road, we're going to do a Beatles tribute album. That's where this belongs. It doesn't belong here. It just doesn't. On the album as its own song, it doesn't fit. As Across the Universe, even with its powerful, powerful run at the end and Bowie saying he wants to kick the hell out of it, it doesn't fit. I have a very hard time with this song, especially now knowing that after this album was finished, Bowie called, hit the, the producer of this album and, and even said that it was apologetic. But Bowie called and said, look, I recorded two tracks with Lennon in New York and I want to put them on the album. And I'm paraphrasing, but the producer of Young Americans, Visconti, had said that it made him sick, the songs that he dropped for these two. Now, I'm going to dive one more dirty level into this and and explain a little bit of my who I almost used the word anger, but I, I have a very it's very tough for me and it's very sad for me to see this. And, I'm, and maybe I'm assuming a lot, but hear me out. This is Bowie who we've already heard be in this reinventing spot, but this spot where he's clearly saying he has emptiness and unhappiness and he's catching up with Lennon, who is in his lost weekend period. All right. So if, if for anyone that doesn't know, it was like, I think two years, maybe three years, but it was Lennon in, he, he said it was his lost weekend period, but 
Lost Weekend was this movie about a drunken author. So this is Lennon unhinged, running around with Harry Nielsen, getting in trouble, putting tampons on his head, just out there, man, you know, as an artist, as a human being. And I feel like all of them got together and put some hate and anger into across the universe. Like they, they he didn't like it. And, and Bowie's like, yeah, I'm with you. And we're going to put it on an album. It seems like a very young musician, a young, angry musician's decision to even put this on this album. And I just don't, it doesn't fit. I'm going to drive that home. It doesn't fit. Uh, I, I'm a little bit out of breath from, from the, I need to find a new word, but this, I, I don't like where all those guys were because I respect all of them. And I feel like this was just a ram it down their throat sort of half-assed version. Uh, I don't think this is a realized version. Even John or who, whoever from the Beatles, but in this case, John saying that he never or didn't like the way Across the Universe was. You're telling me this is how this is your realized version of Across the Universe that you're going to put on a Bowie album? I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. I chalk it up to Lost Weekend, but it makes me sad to see such awesome talent, awesome minds in in a spot like that. And again, maybe I'm assuming, but that's that's what I get I mean, from from reading about it and learning about it. I, you might be on to something there because I don't think it's a coincidence that Lennon took a lot of time off after this right. to settle down and be a dad. And that's a different discussion in and of itself, but Lennon's a complicated figure, to put it lightly. He's one I have a lot of mixed feelings about. So here's that, but... I I don't think it's a hot tea take, though. I don't think this is very up there on anybody's charts. not beloved. I mean, Bowie fans definitely consider this a low point of this era when he was just really doing well and putting out really well-regarded albums throughout this whole decade. And this is just seen as a blot on all of it, I think, by most people. And we, we agree with the crowd on this one. So it's anything, though, it is interesting that it represents two really iconic musicians coming together. And the other song is essential. So at least... Yeah. After that, I, we got something great out of it. John's guitar on it is good. Uh, it's uh, it's it's Lennon playing guitar. It sounds great. It's Bowie jamming out across the universe. But it's the anger and the like the whole being of it. It it, it doesn't fit. <laughs> no, not at all. But um, fortunately, we're gonna before we get to the end of the album, we're gonna go a bit back to the Philly soul side of things. Before we get back to Luther Vandross, taking a break from John Lennon, we are going to our penultimate track, track number seven, Can You Hear Me? This song has a pretty interesting backstory, too, I think. Not with as famous of a figure as John Lennon, but still a cool yeah. backstory. So it was first called Take It In Right, and Bowie had worked on it, and he actually decided he wanted the singer Lulu to record it. And this is pretty high praise he said he really felt that she had the potential to be a great soul singer he even said she could get the feel of an Aretha Franklin which is very high praise I'm not sure I agree with that because that's the queen of soul for a reason that's all I'm saying nobody can get that feel quite but Bowie wrote this as a true love song he said it was a true love song but he wouldn't reveal who it was about but 
the Bowie historians of the world have deduced that it was probably about his paramour of the time, who was also a backing vocalist on the album, Ava Cherry. And uh, he promised to make her a star. She was his protege. And admittedly, he had an open marriage, but it did cause some tension in it because so much attention was put onto Ava Cherry. And this whole backstory behind it, I think in large part, this is probably the album's most well-known non-single. And part of that also has to do for two other reasons. One, it was the B-side to Golden Years when that was released as the lead single from Station to Station. And when he appeared with Cher on her show, he performed this with her. In addition to performing another the uh, uh, fame by himself and the Young Americans medley, and uh, I mean this is the true ballad moment of the album, and uh, for that we have to give it a lot of I don't like it quite as much as the upbeat songs, but it's a very nicely orchestrated and done love song. It really is, and in the seven track, but for this one the seven track is is next to the the last track, so right here it makes sense. We cool down from a raging across the universe uh, and we talk about some real love you know with all that background i pose the question to you does this album really happen like it did even this soul tour does all that really happen like it did if bowie wasn't so enamored and believed in ava cherry so much that he went to philadelphia to record you know in between legs on on this tour um it's a powerful one. It's a powerful ballad. I, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I especially enjoy it right here on the album. It takes us down a bit, but it delivers us to the next track, still listening and still enjoying the music and the sounds that we've been bringing through this album. Yes, most definitely. I completely agree with that. And yep, how else are we going to introduce it? We've mentioned it already. We've been dancing <laughs> around it a lot. But it is time to talk about the last track on the album, a truly iconic song, Fame. And yeah, this was the song that Bowie and Lennon wrote together after recording Across the Universe. And uh, this was specifically about the disillusionment with Fame. And this was pretty heated, actually, because... Bowie had just broken with his management company, Main Man, and his manager, uh, Tony DeFreeze. His wife at the time, Angie Bowie, actually compared DeFreeze to Elvis's Colonel Tom Parker, which, okay, that's saying something. Not that I think everything Angie says is accurate, but I think there's something to that considering this song, because Bowie didn't hold back about this. He said, this is a nasty little song. It's pretty biting. It's like, this isn't this fame. It's a super snarky song. And Which I never I never realized, but <laughs> it is. And you don't realize it because it's just so damn funky. And it it's based on that killer riff thanks to Carlos Alomar. And I mean, yeah, the song itself, it's very upbeat. It easily will get stuck in your head. And that's why... It was the second single, a very easy choice for it to be. And that's why this song is as beloved as it is. Everybody knows the song from Bowie for the most part, it seems, because it did make it to the top 20 in the UK, which wasn't unexpected. But in the US, this topped the charts. And yeah, the significance of that was 
pretty obvious. I mean, this was an artist who'd never even made the top 10 on the Billboard singles charts before. And now he was at the top. And Lennon, I'm sure, had something to do with that because that's just a lot of star power in one song. And it's just a killer song, of course. And uh, yeah, all the success here was deserved. This absolutely, there's no way this couldn't have been a number one hit. It's got it all. And looking at the chart toppers of 1975, this is easily the best of all of them. It's not a contest, actually, at all. Definitely the way you end an album. It's definitely the way you end this album. And it is such a iconic beast that for me, you heard all of the negativity I felt for the meetup of Lennon and Bowie because what came out of it was that mess of across the universe. But here's the flip side. This is how you do it. Even with the anger and the disestablishment that you can hear there that has the Lennon and has the Bowie vibe to it. It's very tongue-in-cheek Lennon for me all the way through this. Um, you can you can you can see that they're they're bouncing ideas off each other, and I picture them laughing with the tongue in cheekness of this this song. Um, but there's no denying the iconic, funky redefinition on this song of Bowie of of his sound, and what a way to finish it off. This is how so you end the album. Yeah, and what an ender! Not many album enders are gonna come across like fame. Just what a song it speaks for itself if you haven't heard it i don't know what you're doing please change that now <laughs> what i'm pretty shocked by this isn't even in his top 10 most popular songs on spotify and i'm not sure i like that a whole lot not that the other songs aren't good but come on this is a classic that's all i'm saying the streaming numbers for this album on spotify are so sad <laughs> i agree <laughs> It's just the first track and the last track and everybody else. I feel like nobody's heard this album. It's a building block for music for the next at least half a decade. At oh, least. Yeah. This is definitely, I mean, we're, we're just going to get into the outro. I have to say this is a very important album, not just for Belly, but we're hearing so much of it's a melding of the past of popular music, courtesy of John Lennon. We have the current sounds of it with the Philly soul and we have the future with the Luther Vandross you're hearing it all here and uh, I mean yes the two singles are iconic but there is a lot more here to enjoy as well and is it Bowie's best album no and I don't think many people could actually convincingly make that argument but as a reinvention I mean, it's just so well done. And uh, I mean, now I'm just going to say it with all of this said, there's so much cool stuff going on here. And Bowie was a lot of fun to discuss. I thought, what an interesting artist. It's no surprise that he's continued to capture all of our imaginations all these years later. But, you know, with all this being said, I do have a grade for the album and I'm going to give it a strong B+. This is an album with some really high highs. And a couple of moments I'm not as crazy about, but there's a lot of interest in both of them, certainly. There's a lot going on in everything here, and we've just got a darn good Plastic Soul album, which is what they call it. Yeah, I, I had to laugh out loud when I started to write a graded review for this because I was taken aback that I was reviewing a re 
definition album for an artist such as David Bowie. And uh, it, it was really mind blowing. I mean, this album for me, you know, it was it was a departure from his previous stuff. We said it a bunch, but it, it really was full of catchy hooks, funky bass lines, soaring vocals. I mean, this was a dancing album uh, and in its highest moments. You know, you got the opening track, Young Americans, all the way to the closing genius composition of fame. I mean, really, I'll use the word masterful performance backed by an all-star cast. I mean, look at it. Carlos Alomar, Luther Vandross, David Sanborn, John Lennon, David Bowie. I mean, a ridiculous cast of characters. Like you said, uh, the past, present, and future all around. For me, I really like a soulful win here and the haunting beauty of the Can You Hear Me? Is There's some of my tops, but it's really his ability to blend all this together in this redefinition of sound that it's it's not only on full display here but it made its impact on the music scene we said that but in my opinion this beautiness this full band experience past present and future is why it still resonates with audience today and uh, i'm i'm actually giving it a very high b plus as well <laughs> i rarely do mine after yours but yep b plus right there it almost made an a but you know there's highs and lows it and... was across the universe honestly that's a on it one weaker song on an eight track album can really bring it down so even more so the the fact that he was like let's take off stuff that we've already put together for this album that we felt about and we we really wanted there for a crazy night with lennon yeah that you know it, that brought it just down for me yeah, one of the songs definitely belong, the other, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. But, you know, I think overall I would say it was worth it, overall, because Fame is that good of a song. And with that being said, what's your favorite song on the album? Oof, man, it, it's so hard. I really enjoyed this album all the way through. I have to go Fascination, man. Fascination is that jam. I implore anybody who hasn't got a chance... Well, of course, this whole album, but get down with some fascination. Put it in your list because it, it'll brighten your day. You'll be dancing. You won't even know it. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do like that pick for best song. And I almost made it mine, but I still got to go with Young Americans. Just what a brilliant song and brilliant. a beloved classic for every reason. One I've never, ever gotten sick of ever and definitely when I'm in the mood for some Bowie, it's always one that is going to be on that rotation every single time. Can't go wrong with Young Americans, the song or the album. So there we have it. And that wraps up our Harry's House month. And uh, this is also tying into our next month because um, it worked out just perfectly. So if you didn't know, I was recently on the iconic doll cast to talk about the Share doll. Had a lot of fun doing it, but upon doing that, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if Turntables and Tea did a whole month of artists who've had their own doll? And it worked out for this because there are actually two David Bowie Barbies, not based on this era. One is Ziggy Stardust and one is Life on Mars. And they're both they're both pretty cool. I mean, Bowie's one who probably naturally gets himself to be a doll. And they don't <laughs> much look like David Bowie, but I mean, well, yeah, Barbie doesn't look like David Bowie. It's just the outfit stone. You got a lot of the work. And 
now this Barbie movie's coming out too by Greta Gerwig. Do they do the face paint on the uh, Bowie Barbie? Yes, they do. There, that's awesome. You see the blush on the cheeks, which is pretty cool. Very cool. So I do like the attention, the detail. I appreciate it. But rest of this month, we have uh, we'll each be picking an artist who has their own toy or doll line, and we'll have a poll of. uh, Well, our poll we're not going to do it till the next episode, but there will be one about tell you what it is when we get to it but in the meantime we have to tell you what we're going to do next and this is one i think Corey will be very happy with it's one we're both familiar with i believe and um uh, i didn't know this whole album had a doll line inspired by it until very recently and doing some research but it did and i'm glad that we now have a reason to talk about one of the most successful pop albums of the 2000s now because of this and that album is Gwen Stefani's Love Angel Music Baby. Oh what we're doing some Gwen all right let's go goosebumps let's go. (laughs) I knew you'd like that I knew you'd be happy because oh man a whole line of dolls huh yeah there is a whole line of Love Angel Music Baby dolls that was released in 2006 mind blown I have no idea. Yeah. Well, she put out that. Well, we'll talk about it next week, but there's all types of stuff that she had out there for that line. That's a a product line almost. Uh, Oh, yeah. This this would be a great talk. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Definitely a fun talk to have because, uh, well, she's a marketing queen, Miss Gwen. What can we say? She still is. She was on Sesame Street for this album. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna uh, <laughs> don't start don't start it now but <laughs> you'll you'll have to wait and see this one's going to be that's a lot right. of nostalgia for us too i think yeah that's awesome yeah very cool so this is going to be a big nostalgia bomb and i cannot wait for it and i'm sure a lot of you can't wait for it either because why wouldn't you be excited to discuss this one but in the meantime, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Turntables and Tea Podcasts. Follow on Twitter at Turntables Tea. And also just subscribe wherever you're listening to us and leave us a nice rating and review. We would really appreciate it so we can keep on spinning and spilling for you. We're very happy to be back after our week break. And we've got lots of great content coming up these next couple months, especially. I'm very excited for what we will be doing both through this month and the next. I'm really excited about that, but I can't reveal it yet because we're not in there yet. But we're very, I'm very excited. I'm beyond I know excited you are. I know about it's that. Be so, so hard for you. I wish you guys could see Charlie holding back what he wants to tell you, but it's it'll be all in due time, all in due time. So much, so much awesome content coming up. So I can't wait. Yes. Lots of it, and it's starting with none other than Miss Gwen and her solo debut, first away from the boys of the band. And I think most of you know how it went, but we're going to find some tea this spill. Don't you worry. Don't you worry. It's going to be so much fun. So in the meantime, try not to get too caught up in the fame out there. And, well, while you're waiting for next week, don't be a hollaback, girl. Peace.